We're going to talk more about that in the third service in Kaya. But for now, we're going to continue our biblical relationship series. Um, we're on the third sermon about friendship. And then we're going to do romantic relationships. And we're going to look at Isaac and Rebecca. And so that'd be a good time. You guys awake? Yeah? Yes, sir. Okay, let's do some quick reviewing. The very first message. Go back one. We're going to quiz you guys a little bit. By the way, Josiah is the new tech guy in the high school class. Hey, pretty cool. Okay, who can name one of the seven uh, biblical characteristics of a biblical friend from that first message? Seven character, one of the seven characteristics. Gavin? Yeah, being for and supportive of friends. Yeah, that's the same thing. Okay, who knows another one? Bring you got another one? Purpose to grow together. That might have been a combination of weeks, I think. But purpose was there, and then purpose was from the first week, and then grow together was the second week. So you're like, she's synthesizing. Even better. Ken? Faithful and giving toward God, yeah. Who can name another one? We'll go one more, and then we'll just look at them. Anybody else know another one? Ken will just answer them all. Ken? Humble and submitted to spiritual authority. Okay, so hit the hit the slide here. Josiah, we'll look at them. For and supportive of friends, faithful and giving toward God, humble and submitted to spiritual authority. A biblical friend will lay down his life for a brother. Um, and we talked about just like practically, how can you serve one another? And that's the type of that's the type of person we want to be around. Um, a biblical friend has a firm loyalty to God and to God's church. A biblical friend knows who he is in Christ, right? And then is purposed for Christ and nothing else. Which Bree was just, she was segueing week one into to week two. So who can tell me what biblical friends do? Who can name one thing that biblical friends do from last week? Who can name one thing that biblical friends do? Kevin? They grow together. Yeah, there's low-hanging fruit. And Gavin grabbed it. So biblical friends grow together. What else do they do? Anybody take notes? Rebecca? Yeah, they grow and recognize and labor in the ministry God calls them to, right? Okay. Tegan, was that what you were going to say? You had your hand up. Obey and declare. They know, obey, and declare the word of God in their own lives. Jesse? Bring others to and consistently gather in places where the word of God is more fine. Yep. Ken? Yep. I think we have six of them, right? Five of them. We have two more. Who knows what the other two are? We did five of them. Bree? Yep. They're led by God and not anything else, including emotions or intentions. And then the last one, this was... Number five, recognize, separate, free. Yeah, they recognize, separate themselves from, and stand up to perversion. Okay, so throw those up there real quick. That's what we, hello. 
Go back. So these are our seven things that biblical friends do, right? Um, has this series been good so far? Has it been informative? Has it been helpful? Okay. I want to tell you a story um, <clears throat> that kind of extends from what Josh was, was using last week. He talked about the purple cobras, um, the glory days, um, or the un, unglory days, really, in terms of basketball. But years ago, I made a decision to invite Josh O'Hara to church, and he agreed to come. So, Josiah, you can hit the next slide here. He agreed to come. We worked, at, uh, worked out that I would drive to Lee Summit. 15 or 20 minutes from my house in Raytown, and um, it's about 25, I would guess, 25, 30 maybe minutes from his house. He had quite a drive even to Lee Summit, and I'd pick him up and take him to MBT on Sunday mornings. Uh, we became really good friends, and as uh, you saw last week, we played basketball together for a few years, and we even began to invite uh, various friends to play with us. So we were, even at, at our earliest levels and the earliest age of our friendship, we were inviting people to uh, the ministry that we had. At some point in those early years of friendship, Josh and his girlfriend at the time, Jerry, signed up for discipleship. I remember when she got saved. I remember Kylie was there. And then shortly after that, they sign up for discipleship, and then we get paired with them. So Kylie and I get to take Josh and Jerry through discipleship years ago. After about two years, maybe a bit less of meeting and teaching Bible basics to Josh, um, he then married Jerry, and uh, they were in Kaya for a couple years, for several years, and then uh, roughly 2016, they came over to to youth ministry. And as you know, today, Josh O'Hora preaches the Bible with me every single week. Every week, he's preaching the Bible. Unless we're combined and we have to rotate back and forth. But Josh Ohora, this friend that I made years and years ago through just a simple outreach, has now turned into a guy who's, who's fruitful, who's faithful, who's going to have fruit at the judgment seat of Christ, who we have an eternal impact on one another and on the world. There's, there's, there's nothing in our lives that is of the same significance as the ministry that we have shared and now share. So I want, you to, I want you to see that the friendship that Josh and I have, he's one of my best friends in the whole world. I care about him like I, I care about, um, you know, if he came from the same mother I did. I mean, we are as tight as, as two people can be. I have a deep care and concern for him, an appreciation for him. Um, and in any amount of sacrifice, I just want to make this point. He talked about how I, I would drive to Lee Summit and back, and I don't even remember those days, really. I remember a few car rides. I remember being with him. But I don't recall waking up and feeling like, oh, man, this is way early. This is really hard. This is such a big sacrifice. I didn't have those thoughts. I, if I did... They're utterly insignificant compared to what I know I've gained from this friendship. Does that make sense? Laying our lives down for each other, doing our best to follow some of these very biblical principles that we've been discussing, just going after that 
has resulted in, in a friendship that's like, I, we, I sacrificed for you? I, I don't even remember that. I don't remember that, you know, suffering. And you have the same opportunity. Not every friendship results in getting to preach together like Josh and I do. Um, but this one, along with other friendships that I have, Dan, Nate, Philip, Mitch, I mean, these guys who are in my life, who we get to serve together, we get to invest the word of God into people together. Um, they are the most valuable. And all the other friendships that I have with people that don't involve preaching and don't involve ministering the word of God into the souls of men simply aren't of interest to me. And some of you have friendships that you are not determined to preach the gospel with them. That's not even an idea. Ministering arm in arm, being a fellow laborer with them, is not even a thought that's ever come across your mind. I want to tell you, those friends, I have the same thing. I have those friends, and that friendship that I have with them is, I, I don't really care. It doesn't matter to me. That person matters to me a lot. I remember a guy named Drew Whiteman that went to high school with me, and uh, we played basketball as well. He, we, we, yeah, we, we purple co-bred him. He came and played a few times. Uh, and I remember spending a lot of hours at his dad's house, a lot of hours, um, hanging out with him. And I shared the gospel with him a few times. And I got to the point that our friendship was me going to his house, eating peanut M&Ms and playing video games on his dad's, like, 25-year-old humongous TV for hours. We would just go and play. And it was fun. I enjoyed it. But our friendship got the, the focus from, I need to, I need to see this guy saved to we're just doing whatever is fun. And I got to the point where the Lord led me to say, you know what? You stay connected to him. You stay, you stay loving and praying for him. I prayed for him for 10 years. I haven't prayed for him a long time. I prayed for that dude for 10 years that he would get saved after I stopped hanging out with him. And now he's in a place where he didn't want to have anything to do with the gospel. I've met up with him a couple of times to try to lay out life and purpose, and he didn't have any interest in it. And so that friendship to me is in a point. It's like, okay, I respect your position, but we're not going to be real, real tight, right? So this morning we're going to cover three parts of a story here in Acts chapter 14 that describes, the story describes our main character Barnabas and his BF. What's BF stand for? Biblical friend, thank you. And his biblical friend Paul preaching the gospel despite a variety of challenges and temptations. So if you were looking at Acts chapter 14, verses 1 through 7, <clears throat> turn there with me if you haven't. We're going to read a few verses and pull some application here. There's Mickey just going off. Mickey, do you see this? This is you, bro. Dunking. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And then there's Gavin. Creeping. And then Woodrow. Woodrow's like, that's amazing. Yeah. Okay, Acts chapter 14, verses 1 through 7. It says this. And it came to pass in Iconium that they went both together, this is Paul and Barnabas, into the synagogue of the Jews, and so spake that a great multitude, both of Jews and also of the Greeks, believed. They go, they preach, people believe. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and made their minds evil affected against the brethren. 
So th- these unbelieving Jews are stirring people up to despise Paul and Barnabas. Verse 3 says, Long time, therefore, abode they speaking boldly in the Lord, which gave testimony unto the word of his grace and granted signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the multitude of the city was divided, and part held with the Jews and part with the apostles. And when there was an assault made, both of the Gentiles and also of the Jews with their rulers, to use them despitefully and to stone them, they were aware of it, and fled unto Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lycaonia, and unto the region that lieth round about. And there they preached the gospel. A couple verses that stand out are, number one, when these unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles to despise Paul and Barnabas. They're preaching the gospel, and people didn't like it. So they're, they're beginning to rally. They're beginning to protest against Paul and Barnabas, right? Probably pretty similar to what's happening in major cities in America right now. Different reason, but a similar action. They're protesting because these guys are preaching the gospel, right? And so it says, a long time, therefore, abode they speaking boldly in the Lord. So they stayed. They didn't just run away. There's protests, but they, they had to preach the gospel, right? And then when they found out that people were going to kill them, they were going to, like, wipe them out, they were like, okay, in order for the gospel to continue to be preached through us, we better move on and preach somewhere else. That makes sense? So despite the rallying up of people against the apostles and the gospel, ultimately, they determined to preach the gospel regardless of where they end up and who they preach to. They're ready and determined to preach the gospel. 1 Corinthians 9.16 says this. This is Paul, and this is Paul's heart at this time in Acts, and this is Paul's heart throughout his ministry. He says, for though I preach the gospel, I have nothing to glory of. I know that I would want to feel very glorified if I'm preaching the gospel and the whole city hates me. I'd be like, I'm pretty cool. I'm pretty hardcore. I came to church and there was rallies down in the city. I'm cool and hardcore. Garbage, right? Paul says, I have nothing to glory of. For Here's why. For necessity is laid upon me. Yea, woe is unto me if I preach not the gospel. Paul recognizes and felt it necessary to preach no matter what. So how did he get to that point? That's what I want to know. How does he feel that it is absolutely necessary? There are no other alternatives. There's no other option. It's a necessity on me. How do we get to that? How do we have that same burden for souls and for the gospel to be preached? Because many of you don't care at all. You don't care that your friends, that your loved ones are going to go to hell when they die and burn there for eternity and God's judgment simply because they haven't accepted the gospel simply because it hasn't been preached to them by you. And we can sit in our chairs and not give a crap. And you're staring at me because you know it's right. And I know that I'm, I am just as guilty. We can, we can not feel that burden. But here's how we can feel that burden. Here's how you get it. If you don't feel burdened for souls, check this out. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 14 to 15 says, this is Paul again, he says, For the love of Christ constraineth us. It's got a hold of us. 
Because we thus judge. It's one judgment that will give us a burden for the lost. This is the judgment. That if one died for all, then we're all dead. Jesus came and died because we were all dead. Right? You and I, before we accept Christ, are dead in our sins. We are, we are destined for destruction. We are destined to burn in hell for eternity outside of Jesus Christ. But Jesus Christ came and he died and he, he, he that, uh, and that he died for all that they which live. Okay, so Jesus dies so that we can live. You accept Jesus' life. Well, I get to just go party now, right? I get to do whatever I want, right? He died for me. It was a gift. I can take it and I can run wherever I want to go with it. That's not why he died for you. And that he died for all that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. We judge that we owe everything to Christ because he died for us and gave his all for us. You, you can't, you, you can't, I don't think, consider the fact that God gave everything for you. And you can't judge that reality and say, I'm just going to do whatever I want. That doesn't make sense. Something is not clicking in your brain if that's the judgment that, that we're making, right? He died and gave all so that you would give all to him, period. <laughs> that's the necessity that is laid on you. The OG, Doug Fife. Who knows who Doug Fife is? He's the OG. That's who he is. Uh, Nate said, I talked to him one time. This is a couple years ago, so I'm paraphrasing this quote. But um, he said uh, he, he, he worked for like 50 years or something, like a, a long time as a, um, as a laborer, basically. He repaired maintenance, uh, maintenance um, appliances. And so he worked with his hands. He was a hard worker, and he got up really early. And that stood out to me. I, remember, I, think, I think he told me this around the time where he retired, where he's retiring. And he told me, I get up and read my Bible at 5 a.m. every day. And me at the time, I was like, 5 a.m.? What? I get up at like 12 p.m. Like, I can't get up at 5. He was like, I get up at 5 a.m. every day because... God gave his best for me, so I naturally want to give my best to him. And the heart is, he gave everything. You're going to hold something back? He wants you to preach the gospel, and you're going to say no? Now, the last verse here before we get our key point number one is, is near the end of Paul's life, one of his last charges to Timothy, who is his son in the faith. This is Paul's... Um, Man, this is Paul's future of ministry, right? Paul's going to die soon. And, and so he's charging Timothy here in 2 Timothy chapter 4 in an effort to continue the ministry that Paul had really begun and, and seen grow and flourish. And this is what he says. He says, I charge thee, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom. This is what he wants. This is what he wants Timothy to know. This is what I'm charging you to. This is what I'm giving you to do. This is, this is of eternal importance. Preach the word. Be instant. Be ready. Be about it. In season 
out of season. You're always ready. You're always determined. You are preaching the word. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine. And so we get our key point number one. The biblical friends stand and preach in the midst of persecution and distress. Biblical friends are people who are bound and determined. They stand together and preach the gospel in the midst of persecution and distress. So whatever is happening, whatever is coming their way, well, I'm going to preach the gospel. There's people rallying and protesting against the gospel, and me, well, I guess I better preach the gospel, right? That's pretty hardcore. And there are, there are probably several examples of men and women in our church who live up to that um, standard. People who have, who have faced persecution that I haven't, that you haven't maybe. And I want to be one of those people that's willing to preach, determined, feel it necessary to preach, even when there's persecution and distress. My daughter, she's... Um, Three and she acts like it. And so a slogan that I've taught her is, um, even when it's hard, I can be okay because God's got it. Even when it's hard, I can be okay. I can obey because God's got it. It doesn't matter. <laughs> it doesn't matter if it's hard. I have to do it. It doesn't matter if I have to wear a mask. It doesn't matter if I have to social distance. It doesn't matter if it has to be online. It doesn't matter. I have to preach the gospel. And I can be okay. And I can do it because God's got it. Right? The second passage here from Acts chapter 14 is 8 through 18. The verses I want to draw your attention to uh, will be 14 and 15. But basically what happens is Paul and Barnabas, they're, um, they're in... They move on, right? They leave Iconium because they hear they're going to die. So they go to this next place, and they see a guy, and he can't walk. And, and Paul's like, stand up. Get up. When he's a cripple. And he gets up. And so God heals this guy using Paul. And so the whole city is like, the gods have come down. They're like, Thor is here. Oh, my goodness. It's, it's Superman. Right. And so they literally call them uh, Jupiter and Mercurius. Right. And so there's this religion, this false religion that worships these different gods. And they literally are. They think that these are the gods that have come down. And so they begin to worship. And there's a priest. Of, of Jupiter who comes over. and He's like, oh, Jupiter's here. I got to make a sacrifice. So they bring an oxen, like they're bringing sacrifices and they're straight up about to worship these guys. Now, I don't know about you, but if a group of people was like going to come bring some sacrifices to me, I'd be like, no, no, no. Come on. No, stop it. Come on. Right? Maybe not physically, maybe not outwardly, but in my mind and in my heart, I know, man, I would be definitely tempted to want to take in some worship, right? Some recognition, the pride of life. Man, I know I'm susceptible to it. But here's how they respond. In verse 14 and 15, it says, Which when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of, they rent their clothes. They strip their clothes off. They tear their clothes. 
and ran in among the people, crying out and saying, Sirs, why do you these things? Why are you doing this? What are you doing? We also are men of like passions with you and preach unto you that ye should turn from these vanities unto the living God, which made heaven and earth and the sea and all things that are therein. So they go in and they preach, and they're preaching the gospel. They're preaching to these people who are worshiping them, who are respecting them. And so in their worship, the priest comes up. They are far from nonchalant about this praise and worship and respect they're receiving. They're far from nonchalant. They're far from casual, right? They run in and rip their clothes off, and they're crying out to them. They are vehemently uh, rebuking this plea to worship them. They won't let these people's view of them change their agenda, though, right? So the people come up and worship them, and they see that, and they're like, stop doing that. And then what do they do? They preach unto them, turn from, from these false gods into the living God. Their agenda is the same, to preach regardless of how they're viewed. They won't cave to the praise. They won't show preference to the people who worship them. They shut it down. Because they don't, get this, they don't pick and choose who they preach to. They don't pick and choose. They preach to everybody. They preach what the word says. James 2 verse 1 says, My brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Don't be a believer who's given all of your life to Jesus with respect of persons. In other words, we don't believe on Jesus and his death and shed blood on the cross for the whole world and then respect some of those people, minister to some of those people, hang around with only certain people because they're rich or cool or they love us a lot, and then despise those who don't meet our fleshly, arrogant standards for acceptance. We don't get to do that. Unity in the gospel is the only option. For believers. And that would that would be we would be wise to, to follow that. Because Proverbs twenty nine twenty five says, The fear of man, the fear of man, fearing man and his judgments and what he thinks about us, bringeth a snare. So when we fear man and find ourselves bouncing back and forth between man's ever changing judgment of us, right? In other words, we're looking for how people are viewing us. Are they worshiping me? Are they despising me? If I'm looking for that and I fear that and that's got my attention, I'm trying to keep up with the style of my clothes. You can't keep up with the fads. What was cool last year is no longer cool. It's not cool, guys. What was cool when I was in high school? If I wore what I wore in high school, you guys would just, you, nobody would talk to me. I was, I wore a hoodie with a t-shirt over it. Style. You do? Swag. Right? But, but in all seriousness, the fads of today, the styles of today, whether it's Nike or Adidas, the newest shoe, it gets old. And in fact, in fact, even the retro shoes that were cool and then have come back, they're going to not be cool anymore. Watch. Watch. How have the 90s in that style come back to be so cool all of a sudden? Where did that come from? 
The 90s and the 90s were cool. And then in the 2000s, we were like, that is disgusting. I remember thinking 90s style was really ugly. And the rest of the world did too. And now all of a sudden, it's like, got to have your mom jeans on, girls. Dad's got to have dad jeans. Right? We can't keep up. And even if you feel like you are keeping up, you're running the wrong race. The company that we keep, if we're, if we're analyzing people's judgment of us and, and we have to pick the people that we hang around and we're friends with people because we know that if we're friends with them, that gets us some kind of status. That gets us some kind of respect. Man, we will find ourselves trapped in a snare. You can't win. And what you actually do is you handcuff yourself. We handcuff ourselves, disabling the gospel being preached to anyone who the Lord might use us to share with. If you come into this very room thinking about what other people think about you, you're already thinking about the wrong thing. You're already thinking about yourself and not the lost and not the potential to preach the gospel to someone. So I'll tell you this, Kylie, my wife, <clears throat> is the ultimate warrior of not being a respecter of persons. In my life, she is, is very admirable. She will preach and reach whoever she's around, whether it's her nail salon guy who's giving her a manicure, whether it's her neighbors, our neighbors, her heart for our neighbors. Dude, I suck, man. I suck. I'm a big, soft coward. And my wife will take our girls and just push them around the neighborhood and, and hand out cards and love on people. Dude, my neighbor is dying of cancer. He was supposed to die like a month ago. And he just keeps on living. And my wife, months ago, went over there to reach out. And I'm too busy. I'm too scared. Man... I don't know about you. I want to be done with that. I don't care what people think about me. I don't care if he rejects me. The dude is literally dying. So I'm going to let my fear of going and talking to him get in the way? Screw that. No way. Nope. Kylie, she goes up and talks to him. Whether it's friends she meets in town or whatever. There are people who are at our church because Kylie just in a friendly way, reached out to them. And I was with her, and it was so uncomfortable. And she would just be like, hey, my husband does a Bible study. And then guys come to the Bible study. I'm like, dude, she's really showing me up, man. She's the warrior. Because she doesn't pick and choose based on worldly, immature respect and favor. She reaches and preaches the lost. So how do Kylie, Paul, and Barnabas get to this point of preaching the gospel to anyone and not letting others' judgments of them hinder that, right? We see that the way we get to preaching the gospel because um, even if it's hard, we preach the gospel because it's necessary. That is necessary for us because Jesus died for us. We owe everything to him. Well, how do we get to the point where we preach the gospel, we feel the necessity that's laid on us, but it's a little scary. How do we get over that? How do we get over ourselves, Right? And it's Romans 1.16. You guys know the verse? It's 
For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now there's two components to this verse that we have to grab onto, hang onto, and they will help us get over this hurdle of self-whatever. Component number one, denying reputation and fame or popularity and identifying with Christ. He says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Are you ashamed to say, I believe in Jesus? Pastor Will Mata has this window in the front of his house. and has this big, um, like it's like a um, mural that looks like stained glass. And it says, Jesus saves. Every single one of his neighbors has to see that when they roll into their cul-de-sac. Yeah, Jesus saves. And I got a big and painted on my window. Like I'm some weird 1997 church lady. Up there and unashamed, right? How do we do that? You say, I don't care about my reputation. I care about relating with, identifying with Christ. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Why? Component number two. Because we recognize the power that the gospel has in people's lives. Dude, the fact that, okay, so Josh and I become friends years ago, and then we're doing basketball, and then we do discipleship, and it's cool. It's good. Great. I remember talking to Josh when he was considering whether or not he and Jerry would get married. I remember this conversation in my apartment. We were over by the stairs, and they were wanting to make this humongous decision like following the Lord and following wisdom. And I remember talking through pros and cons of asking Jerry to marry you. It was the right decision, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> and I remember one thing that I, I said to him. I said, well, Josh, if you think about it, the, relu- the, the relationship, the relationship has already been very fruitful. Because they were dating, then Jerry gets saved. Man, there's salvation as a result of their friendship. I said, well, I mean, that's got to go on the pros list. Like, that's not necessarily the reason why you should get married, but that's definitely on the pros list. They started a relationship, and, and she gets saved. Now, by the way, they will not advocate that that's the way that you start dating or evangelizing. In fact, you are a fool if you think that that's the best way to do it. Um, but that's the way that it worked out for them. Jerry saved. Praise God. They started a relationship. Praise God that she's in our church and that she's a leader of the young ladies and the women in our church. When you see something like that, Jerry's sitting there in church. She knows something's off. Here's the gospel. That's what was off. Get saved. How can you not share that with someone? Have you not led someone to the Lord? If you haven't, do it. It will literally change your life and your perspective of your life forever. When you lead someone to the Lord, nothing is the same. And and you feel that necessity and you feel that I don't give a crap mentality. Because I've seen how the gospel can change people's lives. So key point number two is that biblical friends stand together and they preach in the heat of peer pressure and distraction. Things are hard. 
People want me to look this way. People want me to do this. They want me to do that. Don't care. Preaching the gospel because it's what we do. I think this is just before Josh chugged a quart of chocolate milk. Big Daddy Ernesto was there. We see you. Well, we don't actually see you there, but we see you now. Just like I did. You guys are animals. Okay, I got to hit this last point pretty quick because we got to go up and do the most horrible thing of the morning and promote the seniors. Nothing. Okay, third passage. Acts 14, 19 to 22. Um, but I'm just going to read 19 and 20 and, and we'll wrap it up here. It says, and there came thither certain Jews from Antioch and Iconium, the place that they were. These guys, these Jews were talking about stoning Paul and Barnabas, and they followed him. Who persuaded the people, and having stoned Paul, drew him out of the city, supposing he had been dead. Paul gets stoned. He's either dead or he's not. Let's just say he's dead. They kill Paul. Howbeit, as the disciples stood round about him. I don't know about you. If Josh dies, and I'm standing at his funeral, and he he rose up, uh, that would be shocking. But but seriously though. If, if, if Josh dies, if one of my friends dies, what happens here in this passage, for me, I don't think it's an option. I think I'm too soft. I think I'm too tore up. I think I'm a little baby. Because here's what happens. The disciples stood round about Paul. He rose up and came into the city, and the next day he departed with Barnabas to Derby. If Josh dies, I'm not thinking, man, come on, Josh, get up. Get up. we got to go to Derby tomorrow. All right, he's dead. I'm going to Derby. Because what it says is, and the next day he departed with Barnabas to Derby. Now, when I read that, I think it looks like Barnabas was planning to go to Derby with or without Paul. Now, I can't say that emphatically. Either way, they they get up and and go to another city to preach the gospel the very next day after this friend dies. So the evil men who had, who, were, who had been pursuing Paul and Barnabas for preaching the gospel eventually caught up to him. They stoned Paul. Disciples are standing around, seeing their dead friend. They have this interesting response uh, once Paul rose up. The next day they go to Derby. They continue on the mission and purpose that God gave them. These guys are sticking together through life and death. Determined to preach the gospel. Paul dies or gets close to death, gets up, leaves the next day to preach. Barnabas, his best friend, dies, potentially planning to go to Derby with or without him, doesn't leave when Paul dies. He could have just said, I'm going home. This is crazy. This guy just got stoned. Disciples, we ought to get out of here. We should probably go home. This guy died. We shouldn't go. You've got Woodrow. He's dead. Elsie's standing there. These guys, what it is, is Paul and Barnabas have a different perspective 
than we do. Paul says in Philippians 1.21, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul is saying that if he's alive, it's for Christ and his mission. And if he dies, sweet. That gives him and his relationships a certain edge and radicality, if that's a word. Because he thinks and is convinced, if I'm alive, it's for Christ. If I die, all right. I'm not afraid. That dude's edgy. That dude's hardcore. That dude's radical. You and me, in the words of Kobe, soft as Charmin. What can stop Paul and Barnabas if death can't? If death can't stop them, what can? In Acts 14.21 it says, And when they had preached the gospel to that city and had taught many, They returned again to Lystra and to Iconium and Antioch. So they leave, they preach the gospel, and they go right back where the guys who just killed them were. Are you kidding me? They say, all right, we died. Let's go preach. Gospel, 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 gospel. Those guys just killed me? Let's go. What? I'm not scared. You got to hear the gospel because you got to get saved. That's necessity. Dude, that's hardcore, man. They go right back to where Paul was stoned. So I'll, I'll end with this. Philippians 2, 29 and 30. Paul tells the Philippians, as Paul's in jail, for the gospel's sake, by the way. He says, receive him. He's speaking of Epaphroditus. He says, receive him, therefore, in the Lord with all gladness. So receive this guy and hold such in reputation. Hold guys like Epaphroditus in reputation. That's the, that's the guy you want to to recognize, to, to say, hey, let's be like this guy. Why? Because for the work of Christ, he was nigh or near, he was nigh unto death, not regarding his life. Why? To supply your lack of service. We're called to receive and recognize men and women who are willing to lay down their physical lives for the work of Christ. That is the kind of friend I want to be. And that's the kind of friend I want to have. And frankly, if you're not like that, I love you. But I really would prefer you to be like that because that's hardcore. And I want to be hardcore. And if you're not hardcore and I'm hardcore, we're probably not going to be hardcore together. We're probably not going to be doing the same things. Right? This type of friend simply mirrors Jesus Christ who laid his life down for our sin in our place. Key point number three is this. Biblical friends stand and preach in the face of death. This is such a creepy picture because they're all wearing black. But do you know that Adam went to New York where COVID-19 was just raging? He went there to go preach the gospel. And he was preaching the gospel to one of my students while he was here. I want to be like Adam when I grow up, man. And so we conclude it all. We wrap it all up in this way. The conclusion is that biblical friends are resolved to preach the gospel no matter what.
Biblical friends are resolved. They're going to preach the gospel no matter what. Kyle, can you throw those tissues? I'm about to leak into this microphone. This is a fully loaded picture, too. Nate, resolved to preach the gospel no matter what. Mike, resolved. We want to be friends like that, and we want to have friends like that. And if we don't, we're missing out on, on great blessing. Okay? I love you guys. I don't want to go upstairs, so let's just pray and hang out down here all day. Yeah? Perfect. Okay, let's pray, and then we'll, we'll clean up. And then um, if you're going to go up and watch the, the seniors be recognized, then we'll do that. So let's, let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Uh, such a big baby and I'm, and I'm such a mess and Lord I know that I know that this message was for me for me first um, I like to be comfortable I like convenient ministry I like convenient evangelism I like comfortable um, controllable evangelism. I don't like just being fully surrendered to the gospel ministry. I don't like that. That scares me. That's hard. I'm introverted. I have lots of excuses, God, that I could give you for not being fully surrendered to the gospel. Lord, I want to be surrendered. And I want to say yes to whatever you call me to. And God, I pray that that would be the heart and mentality of the seniors. That they would go to Kaya knowing that their vision, their purpose is to preach the gospel. It's to, to be in discipleship. And God, I pray that the eighth graders, now ninth graders, would come into the high school class and they would adopt and grow in that same determination that they wouldn't be soft little children by the time they leave. God, right now, we, we, I embrace the, the, the childishness of our group. I love it, actually. I, I was joking that, it's, that I don't like it. I actually do really like it. It's a lot easier for me to be childish than mature because it's me. <clears throat> but, but God, grow them in their faith and their boldness. And the same thing for these sixth graders, these little babies that are coming into our group. Oh, God, have them and have your way with them. Don't let us let any of them slip through the cracks. We want to be arm in arm, purposed in our biblical friendship. God, we love you. We're thankful to you for all that you're doing and you're going to do in our ministry and in our lives through your word, with your word, uh, reproving us and changing us. God, would you bless the time upstairs? Um, man, let these seniors recognize how much we love them. And I just ask it all in your son's name. Amen.